Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host in one of our many undisclosed locations across the country. But in Washington, D.C., we have with us David Sanger of the New York Times in the newsroom of the New York Times. And we have Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council somewhere in in one of her undisclosed locations. And we have Rosa Brooks in Alexandria, Virginia, hometown of Paul Manafort and so many others. Um, Confederate war statues. So much interesting going on in Alexandria, Virginia. But let me start. Um, and I want to get to a big scoop that David had about North Korea before we end this episode. But let's just start in Europe, because the president of the United States went to Europe in order to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. So, Evelyn. How yes. That, uh, was that a big success for the president? Oh, come on. You're so leading the witness, David. <laughs> it was a fiasco. I mean, first of all, he was it was America apart. You know, he was not uh, mixing and mingling and showing goodwill towards our allies and our partners, those people who fought and bled together with us in World War One, and obviously then subsequently in World War Two. He instead he was, you know, giving the thumbs up or getting the thumbs up from Vladimir Putin, um, and he was not respecting our veterans appropriately. He refused to go to the cemetery near Bella Wood which is, of course, for the Marine Corps, a very hallowed ground and one of their foundational battlefields. Um, He refused to go and pay his respects. He then tried to make up for it subsequently. Um, But from what I'm reading today, he refused to go to Arlington Cemetery. And I I know better, but I would think our president were made of sugar because it seems that the rain is the the correlation here. Um, Having said that, more seriously is the fact that he doesn't seem to understand history and how World War I fits into the current dynamic, all of his bluster and his railing against international institutions and the international order only highlights the fact that those things, the international institutions, the international order is what actually has protected us from World War I and World War II and World War III happening again or happening uh, to begin with. So I think, uh, it, you know, we looked terrible. The United States looked terrible in as much as he was representing us. And um, even more alarming was the fact that I don't think he understood the implications of what that ceremony meant today. Well, he did. I mean, he didn't go to the ceremony at Bella Woods because of the rain, although immediately the Trump troll networks were out there going, 
no, no, it was a security threat. And he's the only person who was important there. And all those other leaders, nobody was interested in. Um, but he also um, didn't walk arm in arm with the other world leaders down the Champs-Élysées and show solidarity there. He was two hours late for the state dinner that took place. Um, uh, he, he at, at every turn, he had David, a, he, give he him had a break. A, give him a break because, you know, because I want to point out that while he didn't show up arm in arm, he wasn't as late as Putin. Putin showed up later. Well, that's that's because Putin does that as a fine art of being a jerk. So there you go. But isn't it? It's like showing up at the party and being afraid you were the last one in, and you discover somebody's even later than you. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but for something that was supposed to be a show of unity, showing up on time so that you can walk arm in arm in time for the eleventh um, uh, hour on the eleventh day of the eleventh month would would be important. Well, and also, David, uh, the president of France, the host, at one of those occasions where Trump was actually nearby, blew up Trump with an attack on nationalism, uh, saying it was unpatriotic, pointing out that it was at the root of a lot of the problems that Evelyn was alluding to earlier. It was as direct uh, you know, an attack as one world leader has delivered another that kind of setting as I can think of in a while. That's kind of extraordinary. Uh, you've been covering international affairs since the Treaty of Westphalia. Do you see this stuff happen a lot? Or <laughs> I want to point out I was very young when the Treaty of Westphalia <laughs> happened. Okay, and 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 uh, of course Evelyn and Rosa have only had to read about it in history books. Um, yes, that's true. Right. And and uh, and that David was doing a, a the the first Westphalia podcast from there actually. Yeah, um, no, it was it was it was <laughs> deep. Deep West failure was very popular. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so it's a rare day that I think I have ever seen one president be as direct about another. Remember, Donald Trump had used the phrase nationalism proudly a few times in campaign speeches just a few weeks uh, before. And here you had uh, Macron, the man who um, President Trump kept saying he had such a great relationship with. Uh, basically saying you are repeating the mistake that contributed to the great disaster of the Great War. And that was that was pretty remarkable. And the way that Macron phrased it was um, sort of reminded me of Tocqueville and other Frenchmen's self-interest well understood. What he was saying was to say that it's your country first is basically to say, forget about everybody else, which is, I think, a concept that uh, that President Trump wouldn't necessarily dispute because he says America first means you stand up for American interests first and what national leader doesn't. But Macron was doing something a little deeper. He was saying the higher form of patriotism is to understand that your national interests are only pursued usefully if you can do it along with others' national interests. He was basic, making the basic argument for why diplomacy matters, that you find the common ground between each country's national interests and try to wend your way through that. And uh, it didn't seem to be a lecture that President Trump, just from body language, was very happy sort of sitting through. Well, Rosa, you know, David brings up this point about America first. And um, as a student of history, I know that you realize that the first time that Trump really encountered this idea was, <laughs> was in a meeting with David Sanger. 
I know. And, I've, I've blamed him ever since. <laughs> and now we see all of the Atlantic Alliance collapsing because of the consequence Be- of this meeting of with David Sanger. Because of one seed planted by David Sanger. <laughs> yeah, you see, um, <laughs> Deep State Radio really has more influence than you could possibly know. Well, of um, course. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole premise, David. We have more influence. <laughs> Far more than you can possibly know. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an extraordinary turn of events that the only two people that Trump actually seemed to get along with during this meeting, um, were, were, were Putin and Erdogan, who he sat next to at the dinner. Um, and while he was there, not going to these events, and he was tweeting out some kind of nonsense. Half of it was kind of authoritarian, anti-U.S. election nonsense. But he also then celebrated, in one tweet, not the 100th anniversary of the end of the World War I, but the 100th anniversary of the founding of Poland uh, in support of the kind of nationalist government that he likes there. And he, I mean, he, he's really chosen side. You know, that was, it wasn't just a very part. It's, well, it's and like, this is completely, this guy. is, I mean, let's, let's not act like this is surprising to any of us. Uh, Trump has always exhibited two things. One is a distinct preference for uh, authoritarian slash fascist uh, leadership styles and, and leaders uh, uh, from Putin to Erdogan. Uh, uh, and so no surprise sure. here. He's he's to far Kanye, well to me, Kanye can, right to Kanye yeah. West, a well-known <laughs> authoritarian leader, um, uh, to Viktor Orban in in Hungary. Uh, uh, you know, so 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 there's no Duterte in the Philippines. We could go on and on and on. Um, um, no surprise that he once again gravitates not towards uh, leaders of democracies, but towards leaders who are themselves uh, fundamentally authoritarian in their own sensibilities. The other thing that Trump has consistently displayed is a, is a complete inability to understand <laughs> concepts such as empathy or sacrifice or, or courage. You know, I remember this is the guy who, uh, this is the guy who dismissed uh, uh, the late Senator John McCain as a loser because he had gotten captured in Vietnam. And so I'm assuming that it wasn't the reason Trump played hooky from the various remembrance, graveside remembrance ceremonies was, was not only that his, his hair is presumably water soluble, but also that, you know, he thinks that the people who got killed were a bunch of losers. You know, winners don't die. Losers die. Why would he go, you know, I mean, so this is completely consistent with what we've seen from him uh, for a very long time. You know, he, he's devoid of empathy and he likes authoritarians. What else is new? And that's our president. That, yeah, no, it's it, it certainly is our president. And then he doesn't go and he doesn't celebrate or commemorate Veterans Day even here. He did once on the Howard Stern show, show suggest that his own private Vietnam was having to date as many women as he did and risk getting STDs as he did and that he deserved the Congressional <laughs> Medal. That's right. Of, uh, uh, Congressional Medal of Honor for that. So presumably uh. instead of going to Arlington <laughs> Cemetery, he was at home. Doing, you know, some kind of self-reflection, I, hopefully not a self-examination. <laughs> um, Yuck. Um, Evelyn, no, right? I, I mean, 
this is true just for the deep state nerds he didn't just make this up yeah it's it's absolutely it, it is Donald absolutely Trump did say that <laughs> yeah so is this all trivial evelyn does it not matter these are just shows it doesn't matter if the president sort of flew in flew out made an embarrassment of himself the american people don't seem to care or you know do you think the europeans are over it i mean one of the things that Trump was apparently irritated about on his way over there was a statement made a couple of days prior um, by Macron saying, well, maybe it's time for the Europeans to uh, put together their own army to defend them against Russia, China, and the U.S., which Trump referred to as insulting and immediately went back into his complete misunderstanding of how NATO is funded. Right. Uh, are we are we seeing a rift here in the Atlantic that's actually deeper than these kind of embarrassing episodes would suggest? Potentially. I think it's still we're not at the point where it's irreparable. This is why, you know, the issue of a second term for this president is so critical, because at this point, you know, the world leaders who are notionally, nominally our allies, the French and the Germans, can sort of hang in there for two more years. But if they if 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 President Trump gets a second term, then all bets are off. Then and I think we've had this conversation on this program before. I just came from the NBC studios and I was asked on the MSNBC program at two o'clock. Um, to comment on a on a quote in the New York Times, David's paper, where um, my former colleague, Ambassador Dan Freed, said, I'm not worried about Trump, you know, President Trump leading some kind of, you know, coalition of autocrats to ruin the world. I'm more worried about the United States retreating because of our president's uh, you know, uh, policies and having then the bad guys, if you will, that's not what Dan Fried said, but I'm paraphrasing here, having, you know, uh, President Putin, uh, to some extent, China under Xi come in and do what they want, you know, under the, the balance of power rules, not under international law and the system that we set up after World War II, where you have collective security, you have global prosperity, all being governed in a sense, uh, I mean, limited governance, but run by the international institutions that we, we the United States, set up to benefit us and our allies and partners and even our, our foes, if you will. So I think the danger is not that we do something to upset our allies, it's more that we retreat and they are forced to fend for themselves. Um, yeah, well, we seem to be retreating in some cases, or in other cases, we seem to be um, pretending to be engaged with to no effect. And and while you were on MSNBC, um, I, I noticed that David was on CNN talking about his story in the New York Times today um, regarding North Korea. And perhaps, David, you could bring us up to date on that. Uh, sure. So um, no surprises here. People examine North Korea pretty carefully. It's the most satellite-imaged country on Earth. But um, over at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Victor Cha is running a, <clears throat> an organization called Beyond Parallels. You'll remember Richard was considered uh, Victor. Uh, Victor, Victor. Victor Shaw. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Victor Cha was cons was considered for um, uh, ambassador to South Korea. 
and looked like he was on his way to getting that and basically had raised objections to the way the administration was going about its Korea policy uh, and uh, was disinvited from uh, from that job. Uh, he is um, now back trying to turn out a series of reports that basically shed some light on how well the North Koreans are doing on complying with uh, the agreements that were reached, the very vague agreement that was reached in Singapore five months ago when Kim Jong-un met uh, with President Trump. Now, if you listen to President Trump, it's going great. Uh, he said the other day, we have all the time in the world. The North Koreans are delivering things. There have been no uh, tests. By that, he meant nuclear and missile tests. He said that there have been um, uh, all the hostages have been released. He was referring to Americans who were being held in prison in North Korea. It's a great thing that they're back home. It has absolutely nothing to do with the nuclear program, but it's a, it's a nice step. And uh, what these satellite photographs that uh, Victor's group uh, began to examine discovered was a sort of systematic survey of the missile sites that are across North Korea. And uh, what they discovered was that between a dozen and 16 of those sites are actually have been under active renovation and upgrades, which is not something you do with a facility that you're expecting to go dismantle in a few months. And that these upgrades were going on while the North Koreans were busy um, uh, telling President Trump that they were dismantling other sites. Uh, a missile engine test site that they no longer needed, a nuclear test site that we think has collapsed internally. Uh, so they were making the best of the agreement by closing down a few facilities that they either didn't plan to use or were no longer usable. And meanwhile, they were going about their merry way, uh, improving their, uh, their missile facilities. No surprise there. Most interesting thing today, you know, sometimes in Washington, the most interesting thing is the silences. Not a a word of pushback from this administration. Well, not a word of pushback, but um, you know, I mean, how how could they push back on it? I mean, you know, their 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 position is completely antithetical to this. That's right. The in fact, the State Department. Um, statement, which got issued just as we were getting ready to go to press because they were debating it, basically said that uh, the North Korea would have to give up all of its nuclear and all of its missile sites. So that seemed to suggest that everything that we had shown would have to be dismantled. But here's the interesting question. If you were going to be tough on the North Koreans, you would have come out of the meeting five months ago and said, if Chairman Kim does everything he has just committed to me that he will do, then we will no longer have a nuclear threat from North Korea. Instead, the president came out and tweeted the day after the meeting, we no longer have a nuclear threat from North Korea. So the North Koreans said, great, problem solved. All we had to do was go to Singapore, have a few Singapore slings in the evening, meet the president in the morning, and we were on our way. And uh, in fact, sanctions have begun to lift from China and Russia. And meanwhile, the North Koreans are busy adding to their arsenal. So this brings us to a really important question, Rosa, and that is, it does, was the president duped by the North Koreans or was the president 
trying to dupe the people of the United States of America? Or did the president not really care about the facts as long as he thought he could spin a victory out of it? I'm going to go with with option number three. Um, The president was indifferent to whether he was being duped or he was duping the American public uh, because it didn't really make didn't really matter to him one way or the other uh, because he was going to spin it as a victory pretty much regardless of reality. Well, where does this lead? You know, I mean, it just you you hear these stories. North Korea is making more nuclear warheads. North Korea is, you know, building more missile sites. North Korea, the sanctions are are being sort of uh, lessened because of the Chinese and the Russians. Um, the, The threat from North Korea is progressively getting worse. And the United States is essentially saying everything is fine. Um, Yeah, I mean, the the harder question and and the question which which I've never really felt that I know the answer, um, and I'm not convinced that anyone knows the answer, is how much of a threat is there, right? And I don't think we can define threat purely as based on capabilities. Um, you know, if threat was based purely on capabilities, then this is pretty alarming. Um, North Korea's uh, nuclear capabilities have gotten uh, more and more advanced, and David's uh, important article uh, makes it quite clear that contrary to various promises uh, and contrary to the noises made by President Trump, that they are far from abandoning uh, any of their efforts, and they're in fact making additional progress. So, if, if we define threats solely as are their capabilities continuing to advance, then yeah, it's a threat. But if we if we focus instead on intentions, it it's less clear. Um, you know, we well, and I think that the, this is always the dilemma, and we had the same dilemma uh, when we thought about, for instance, Saddam Hussein or, or Gaddafi, uh, uh, when, you know, lots of, lots of regimes desire to possess dangerous weapons. Um, some of them want to possess them and use them offensively. Some of them think rightly or, or, or wrongly that they will have defensive value and will be a deterrent um, and prevent other countries from interfering in their domestic affairs. And and I don't really think that, I, certainly I know that I don't feel that I have a real grasp on whether the North Korean nuclear program poses an, an actual danger uh, based on intent in addition to capability. Um, and as I said, I'm not entirely sure that anybody has has really understands that. David, could I jump in on, on that thought? Because um, yeah, of course. any any um, any threat assessment is always some combination, some multiplier of intent and capability, right? If Al-Qaeda had a nuclear weapon, we have no doubt they would have used it, right? They never had one. They never had the capability, but they were long on intent. Uh, in the North Korean case, they actually have the equipment, and we don't think that they have serious intent unless they are pushed to something that, in their view, threatens their survival, which can include American-led sanctions. Absolutely. It could, it, it, you know, and that can change rapidly, and the, the threat pro- profile looks different under Kim Jong-un than it did under his father or his grandfather. 
right? Uh, and it looks different depending on the conditions at the time, whether they think the Chinese would back them or whether they think the Chinese wouldn't back them. So you can't actually affect intent over time. The only thing you can affect is capability. And that was the concept right. behind the Iranian uh, agreement that was reached in 2015 with President Obama. We didn't believe the Iranians wanted to go to nuclear war with the United States, but but everybody thought that if you could stop them from having the capability for about 15 years, you had time to work things out. And that's essentially the same problem that President Trump faces with North Korea. We don't know what their intent's going to be like, but that's why everybody has said it's intolerable for them to actually have an operative weapon that can reach the United States. That's the problem the president said in his first week he would solve. That's the problem that the president said right after Singapore that he had solved. There is no longer a nuclear threat. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're discovering that the North Koreans won't meet with Pompeo. They haven't done step one that they need to go do. And um, so all of a sudden, we don't know whether or not a year from now we're going to be back in fire and fury land or whether we're going to be in we fell in love land. But it's also more than that, David, because remember, one of the other concerns we've had about North Korea is not just whether they would use the nuclear weapons or nuclear material, but whether they would proliferate. And we know that in the case of Syria in what was it, 2006, when I was working for the Senate Armed Services Committee, um, we found that they had indeed proliferated. North Korea had proliferated indeed. nuclear uh, uh, facilities, so the know-how to build nuclear facilities to Syria. And of course, the Israelis found that completely unacceptable and bombed the facility. And so that's an additional danger that you have to factor in with North Korea that makes it different, say, from Iran, where to my knowledge, and, and I worked, I was the executive director of the WMD Commission, so we also looked at Iran, and to my knowledge, we didn't have that same concern about Iran proliferating, but we did with North Korea because they're so poor and because they demonstrated that willingness to proliferate, not just in the nuclear side, but also in missile and other technology. Okay. Well, the, look, the only, just, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to, the only thing I, I would also add to that is, is that um, we have... Uh, we have proven very poor at evaluating the intent of others historically. Um, you know, it turned out, for instance, in the case of Saddam Hussein, uh, that he, in fact, was exaggerating the degree to which he possessed WMD capabilities because he mistakenly thought that exaggerating his capabilities would reduce the likelihood of external intervention. In fact, uh, it, you know, we we misread him and it increased the likelihood of external intervention, uh, as he found out to his his detriment. Um, but, you know, he got it wrong and we got it wrong and we got it wrong both on the facts and we got it wrong on the intent. Um, and and so I don't feel any particular confidence that we are suddenly any better at, at understanding um, and accurately, uh, accurately assessing uh, the intent of others. Um, um, and I think we know even less about what's going on in the minds of uh, North Korean leaders than we than we understood about what was going on in the minds of Middle Eastern leaders. Um, but also, the, I think the other point is, you know, of course, David is right. It's, it's much more, it's much certainly much more clear cut to uh, evaluate and, and reduce capability than to uh, alter intent, but that obviously 
and I think this was this was implicit in what David was saying. You know, we we can have an impact on others' intent by the degree to which we scare them uh, or or reassure them for better or for worse. And, and you know, here again, I'm not even at this point with North Korea. I'm not even sure what to wish for because the the only thing that is um, more alarming than the president's lovey-dovey, I fell in love with Kim Jong-un <laughs> rhetoric, um, you know, when speaking about a guy who uh, uh, oppresses his own people, is attempting to build more nuclear weapons and so forth. The only thing that's scarier than that was President Trump's previous fire and fury uh, rhetoric, um, which, which for a brief period there seemed like it stood a significant chance of creating in the North Koreans an intent to use their nuclear capabilities if it hadn't existed previously, um, you know, cornering them essentially. So, so I, I, I have no idea how this is going to play out. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I can't quite decide whether right now uh, it's terrible that we are being fooled or that the, not, not we, David Sanger is not being fooled, but that President Trump is being fooled um, and we are looking like That's a bunch sort of, of idiots. All of America, all of America, David Sanger is <laughs> right. Pretty much. Um, you know, whether I should be more outraged that we're being played for a bunch of suckers by the North Koreans versus whether I should feel relieved that at least now President Trump seems somewhat less inclined to start World War III uh, and is just happy to shrug his shoulders and say, oh, no, 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 we're all good friends. Everything is fine. Well, the big question is, are we fooling ourselves or are we being fooled? I mean, no one in U.S. intelligence yeah. is at all surprised yeah. by anything they read in the New York Times today. They're looking at the same pictures just on the classified side. They know exactly what's going on. Presumably, they're telling the president exactly what's going on. He may be. But unfortunately, the they're restricted to using, you know, two cartoon panes to do so. So well, some of the nuance may be getting lost. You know, it, it, as I demonstrated in the paper today, it doesn't take a whole lot of photographs to make this clear. Yeah, no, and with Trump, what they're doing is North Korea is is um, depicted as a wily coyote with uh, an anvil. You see, and then no, and that's the way that's, to do it. <laughs> I think that's the way to get it, so that Trump understands that. Um, go on. I, you were in the midst of something, David. I didn't. No, I had I had I had had made the point, uh, which was we just don't know um, who's fooling whom here. I mean, I think okay, it well, is dangerous because, you know, we in the U.S. are not being told by our president what the situation is. Right. And then the South Koreans, on the other hand, they are also this current government in Seoul is trying to make nice with North Korea. They're not blind to the facts either. But, you know, at some point, if the regime doesn't change in North Korea, it's going to pose a problem for us because they will then start trying to blackmail the United States, South Korea, you know, possibly even China into God knows what kind of agreement. So, I mean, we do we do really need to keep an eye on their capabilities because the intent is shifting and can change very quickly. And and as you guys pointed out earlier, that's that's the part that we can actually control a lot more simply. I mean, there are fewer variables in terms of controlling the capabilities. Controlling the intent is more complicated. And yes, every government tries hard to do that effectively as well. But I think we, we, can't, we can't 
let the president lull the country and lull other countries into thinking there's no problem with North Korea. So we, so I agree with Rosa. We don't need a full-blown, you know, crisis, and we don't want fire and fury again. But we also need sober analysis and then policy that that tries to reduce the risk to the United States. Oh, we need think, one other thing too, yeah, which is yeah. we need to remember that the uh, Obama administration lulled itself into complete inaction on North Korea in part because it was busy with Iran, in part because it couldn't figure out how to solve the problem, in part because it didn't want to make the kind of threats that Donald Trump made and risk losing Seoul. But as a result, <clears throat> the North Korean capability expanded quite dramatically on President Obama's watch. And what that tells you is that whatever we were doing at that time, the careful balancing of we don't want to make waves, but we really don't want them to build a weapon, simply didn't work. And I think it's so it, it's, uh, while I am, I'm critical of the Trump administration for not holding the Kim regime's feet to the fire for whatever they believe was agreed on uh, in Singapore, I have to say that, that President Trump was right when he said that this problem got passed down from president after president after president. And you go back into the into the now declassified material, and you discover that the first president to pass the buck on this was George H.W. Bush, and on to um, President Clinton, and the second President Bush, and to Obama. And every one of them said it was intolerable for the North to have nuclear weapons, and here we are with 40 to 60 nuclear weapons. So let me make a bit of a counter-argument here, and let me pose it to Rosa, but then we'll get to everybody. We've got about six, seven minutes before we have to wrap this up. Um, and it goes to a broader point, which is, yes, the Obama administration kicked the can down the road in North Korea. Um, but what they didn't do in North Korea was pretend that there wasn't a problem. Uh, and they didn't sort of pull back on some of the points of military leverage that we had. Uh, and they didn't do public relations on behalf of uh, Pyongyang in the midst of all of this. Meanwhile, Right. The Obama administration actually did try to do a deal with the Iranians and got the deal, which Rosa lovingly calls Jikpoa, which now is no longer in place. And the Obama administration did try to take a step to deal with the global threat posed by global warming through the Paris Accords, weak as they may have been. And we have withdrawn from those accords. And the Obama administration did participate in NATO to some degree. Um, as a partner, and they didn't seek to undermine it, and Trump has undermined it. And in the Middle East, whereas the Obama administration's policies were ghastly in Syria and lousy in Yemen, um, uh, and they deserve all the opprobrium that we have given them here and that they have gotten on all of that, um, the Trump administration has given the green light to authoritarians and autocrats to do what they want to continue with war crimes in places like uh, Yemen, murdering U.S. journalists, et cetera, et cetera. And, all, and, and at the same time, the United States has withdrawn. So we've withdrawn. Our alliances are weakened. Tensions have risen on the economic front. Uh, things are worse in North Korea. They're worse with Iran. They're worse within NATO. They're worse with other kinds of threats. You know, we, we're all like in the 2016 election, 18 election cycle and you know, how many seats are we up? And, oh, did Trump get his hair wet? Or, no, he didn't get his hair wet. 
Everything in the world is more dangerous today, Rosa, than it was two years ago. Well, yeah, very likely, David. Um, and I, I, you know, I think that you're right that there were very significant differences between the Obama administration's uh, approach to this and and other issues uh, and the Trump administration's. I, and we we were talking, we've talked about this in in other contexts. I think I think that. I think that it's fair to say two things about the Obama administration, one of which was that their foreign policy was muddled, conflicted, and generally ineffective. Uh, the other is that they, members of the Obama administration, including the president himself, were, were aware and at least some of the time willing to acknowledge the, the muddled conflict and, and, and ineffectiveness. Um, that they were reasonably intellectually honest about it. Um, they were defensive and irritable, but they they weren't entirely in denial. Um, uh, whereas the Trump uh, administration is neither uh, intellectually honest about any of this, nor particularly troubled by uh, complexity or contradictions. Uh, it seems to bother them not at all. Um, I I you know I think that the Increase in danger has as much to do with some issues that we we've also talked about in other contexts, uh, as much to do with the the damage we have done to alliances and relationships with allies and partners as it has to do with the ways in which we have mishandled adversaries. Uh, you know, to to get a calamity, you you not only need a determined uh, adversary, you also need uh, friends who have no particular interest in, in, in helping you. And under Trump, we have both um, empowered adversaries and we have uh, uh, treated our friends so badly that it is less and less clear that they will have any interest in assisting us if we need their help. Okay. Um, Evelyn, we have three minutes left. I would like you to split it with David. Um, is everything, as I say, worse off now than it was two years ago? Yes, I think so. I mean, honestly, the only thing I can say is our economy looks okay, but the economists argue about whether that's likely to continue. But I think in terms of... I'm not feeling so good about my 401k right now, Evelyn. <laughs> Sorry. In terms <laughs> of the global order, I think it's in as much danger as it's been since the end of World War II. I'm not exaggerating because of the, the willful ignorance of our president and the very negative law-breaking actions of Vladimir Putin, as well as President Xi, at least in the South China Sea. And uh, I really think the autocrats can win the day globally if we are not careful. Over to David. I have to give, I have to give, you, I have to give you credit for being able to have said President Xi in the South China Sea. That was impressive. That is good. That is good. <laughs> Since I've messed um, up two names in the course of, you know, a mere 40 minutes, you know, I feel particularly humbled by the way Evelyn did that. Um, My first so, language was in English, so maybe that's it. Of course, that, we don't don't be shy, David. We do have a president who who continuously insists that he can't possibly even understand any accent, non-American accents, much well, less pronounce any foreign Particularly names. while standing in the rain. Yeah, uh, next to his Slovenian-born well, wife. <laughs> yeah, right. I was just going to say particularly while speaking to his wife. Yeah. David. So um, I think the more interesting question is, 
if you think there's been significant damage done, and I think we all agree there is, how long-lasting is it? And that really has to do with two things. How long is the Trump presidency? Do we have two years left on it, or do we have six years left on it? Um, and I think the second question that comes out, out of this is, since politics uh, abhors a vacuum, will the Chinese, the Russians, the British, and the French all use this moment to go redefine the rest of their relationships with the rest of the world. And that if the U.S. went back to a path that it was on relatively steadily with some bumps across Democratic and Republican administrations, would we discover that that isn't an option anymore, that uh, that there's actually been a permanent change in the world alignment here? And I'm not quite ready to say that. But certainly the longer these kinds of tensions go on and you see the kind of, of discomfort that you saw when the president was in Europe uh, this past weekend, uh, I think the, the more permanent that damage becomes. Well, there you have it, folks. Go have a drink. Go have a box of wine. Go bang your head against the wall. But whatever you do every week. Every couple of days, come back to Deep State Radio. Go to deepstateradionetwork.com, get our daily briefs, get our weekly uh, deep tech report, get the other articles that appear on here and the other one-on-one podcasts, which are soon to expand. And within the next couple of weeks, we're going to announce some other expansions, some new podcasts, um, so that we can provide you with this kind of insight all the time. But the heart of it all, always, will be Deep State Radio, the podcast, with regulars like David and like Rosa and like Evelyn and all the others that you have come to know and love. And we will be back to you very soon with another very interesting episode. In the meantime, thank you to David, thank you to Rosa, and thank you to Evelyn. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.